Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this next edition of the podcast, The Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name's Ed Hill, and basically the aim of this podcast is to enlighten people about some journals that my great-great-grandfather wrote back in the 1840s. His name was William Mowbray Scott, and in a jiffy, basically to sum up what I'm doing, is I read an extract from the journals and then as I'm going along I occasionally stop to uh, comment and help explain some of the things that he mentions and some of the comments that he makes and the situations that he finds himself in. Just to briefly say these journals that were written by my great-great-grandfather way back in the 1840s have never been printed or published anywhere else, so this is the first time that anyone's getting a chance to hear them, and hopefully you'll enjoy the journey. They basically cover his time spent in Europe, working on a railway in Milan as an engine driver and engineer, and then his travels across the world to Mexico, where he works as an engineer in the mint or coin industry. So that's about it, really. If you want to know any more about the journals themselves and how they're linked to my family in more detail and their history and how they came about, etc., if you listen to the first introduction episode of the series, you'll hear me explaining a lot about that there and droning on no doubt about it, but it does give you the whole context of the journals, their creation, and how they link to my family, and how this podcast came about. So, we should carry on now to the next entry, basically. So, at the end of the last podcast, William had travelled down from the UK, he'd landed in Boulogne, and then he'd travelled down by stagecoach to Paris, and he just arrived in Paris where he was staying at the Hotel de Bristol in Gay Paris. Interesting choice for an Englishman. Maybe he just thought, that sounds familiar, so I'll stay there. I don't know. I don't know how he ended up in the Hotel de Bristol. Maybe someone recommended it to him on what the 1840s equivalent of TripAdvisor would be. Yeah, very nice, but uh, toilets could have been cleaner. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I digress. So yeah, I'll just explain. So he's got to the hotel and he's going to sort of spend his first night in Paris taking in some of the entertainment that he can find uh, around him. So basically I finished the last podcast at that point because I thought this next section would be a good place to start again and just to say that William spends quite a bit of time in Paris so these next episodes will basically cover that time 
I suspect he must have been there about a week, maybe, because he certainly seems to take in a lot of the sights and sounds of the city before he embarks on his next part of the journey, which is basically travelling down through the rest of France and crossing the border in the sort of French-Italian Alps, basically, to, to reach Milan. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this next part of the journal and the podcast. And this next bit is William enjoying his first night in Paris and taking in the sights and sounds. And most importantly, I think the entertainment. Next moved on to the celebrated boutique au commande, where I beheld the choicest delicacies that could be procured from either the sea or the land, the very sight of which was enough to create an appetite in the most fastidious epicure. It's a food lover. Whilst behind the bar, robed in the purest fashion of the day, some of the handsomest and gayest women of France, certainly more celebrated for beauty than virtue, stand ready to attend the wishes of those who enter. The Café des Mille Colonnes, the Café des Mille Colons, it's basically the Café of a Thousand Columns, is a superb place, its walls entirely covered with brilliant mirrors, its many chandeliers, each glittering with fifty lights, the tables of the choicest marble, sofas and chairs covered with the richest silks and velvets, that I could almost have persuaded myself it was a vision of some fairy tale instead of solid reality. But, to fit yourself for the enjoyment of the Palais Royal, let me recommend the visitor, as the first course, to enter the celebrated blacking shop. The polite attendant will take your hat and cloak. He will point gravely to an elevated seat with a staring red velvet covering. Do not be alarmed. Put your foot on an iron scraper, and there you are, sitting three feet above the level of the floor. Take the newspaper that will be offered to you and read. Never mind the two men who will seize each limb. Raise your head and descend. Let the two assistants continue their avocations. That's job, basically. Then walk to a little counter and pay two pence. Look at yourself in the mirror. Why, you can hardly recognise your figure. You enter the salon bespattered with mud and your whole toilet in disorder. Now you walk out a perfect cavalier sans tache. Now you are civilised and you are now entitled to a turn in the café foy. Or you may do the same as I did on that evening and descend into the Café des Avergles, where a blind band, blind actors and blind actresses exert their talents, accompanied by a famous drummer called the Savage, who makes the welkin ring. That's a, that's a term for a, a real old noise, a deafening noise. Who makes the welkin ring by his battle piece on a series of drums. At this café you only pay for your refreshments, and a motley group certainly there here is gathered together. A celebrated ventriloquist called the Man with the Doll also performs some very amusing tricks. And here I sat highly amused till the hour of midnight, when I hastened to my hotel. I just thought I'd stop reading here for a moment, because I think this whole section is uh, very interesting, in which William describes the nightlife of the Palais Royal. So, of course, he refers initially to this cafe, the Café du Mille Colonnais, 
and at one time apparently uh, it had the most famous hostess in Paris um, she was Madame Romaine and she was considered the most beautiful woman in Paris and uh, she was a lemonade seller so she would attract punters I suppose to these various cafes at one point William describes it as a motley crew and in a way I suppose you could say obviously to try and attract customers they would use all sorts of people and uh, circus type acts or freaks to get people in so that's why we get this collection of blind musicians blind actresses and actresses not the blind people of freaks of course that actually goes back quite a long way not far from this particular site there's a there was and still is actually a eye hospice but it's now an eye hospital bit like Moorfields Hospital in uh, in London, only uh, really concentrates on ailments that affect the eyes. Anyway, back in this time, it was kind of a hospice for blind people. It, it was called the uh, the Casvin, so that's the 1520. I suppose that's a bit like tw- 2020 vision, is it? I suppose, maybe. Anyway, this hospice or home housed, even back in this time, blind people and they would go to the nearby cafe called the Cafe of Argelis which is the Cafe of the Blind and they would perform and perform music and things like that and I suppose various acts and William happens to be there at the time when this was going but it actually went on for quite a long time and in fact that hospital is still there and it is still the specialist eye hospital in in Paris and the, the savage that he refers to there I love that Apparently there was a Café de Sauvage, which may well be where the uh, the Savage was housed. I have to admit, when I first read this, my immediate thought was of Animal from the, the Muppets, you know, Animal, <laughs> and, um, on the drums. So uh, apparently I did a little research who what Animal was, was based on, because I thought it must be based on a real drummer, and of course Cream's Ginger Baker immediately springs to mind, but also Keith Moon from The Who and other reckless drummers that have been down the ages. But apparently there's no specific drummer that Animal, Animal, is based on. But anyway, when I read about the savage drummer in Paris here, that character immediately sprung to mind. I think also I should just mention down the history of these cafes, basically they used ways and people and even proprietors who had quirks and things to try and attract people. Apparently a little bit later there was a cafe opened called the Café de Giant, which it just had the, the proprietor was a giant, a really tall bloke. <laughs> so anything, any little way that you could uh, make your cafe stand out from the rest was uh, was a way to obviously get custom. There's a um, sort of academic paper, uh, which is actually about women performing in cafes around this time. But the lady who wrote this academic paper, Geraldine Harris, does reference some of these various characters and acts that William's mentioning here too. So, yeah, I just think it's a, a really vibrant bit of description that he gives there. I'll just make another point. Uh, I think this is the second time that... Uh, he refers to French women known for their beauty, but maybe not their virtue. I think he does it when he first lands in Calais. Um, I don't know why this is one of these sweeping generalizations. And at first, I did kind of read it as um, maybe some other ulterior kind of, uh, or shall we say, nuanced way of describing a, a lady of the night. But uh, in this context, I'm sure it's not that. Actually, the Palais Royal did become known as a bit of a place where you could find to use the term they use there uh, ladies for sale so it was i suppose later at night known for that shall we say 
availability of the oldest profession, as it's sometimes also described. See, I'm using the same sort of euphemisms as well. Anyway, but I don't think in this context, William is referring to that, having looked at it, but it did become known as an area for that. Anyway, I just thought I'd uh, stop here and just talk about those things that William mentions, because they do make me chuckle. And of course, the first time I read them, you just think, wow, this is incredible. In a way, it's almost the the research you do into something, although revealing, sometimes uh, it kind of, uh, you go, oh, right, so there was a hospital nearby with blind people in it. But of course, he doesn't add any of that context. So uh, these things, when you first read them, are kind of even more striking. Anyway, we'll continue with William's uh, descriptions around this area of Paris. As this celebrated place is one of the principal lions of Paris, I may as well here mention the few historical details I learnt respecting it. It was begun by Cardinal Richelieu in 1629 and finished in ten years. Le Mercier was the architect... It was first called the Hotel Richelieu, and then the Palais Cardinal, and finally the present name, the Palais Royal. Richelieu bequeathed it to Louis XIII and his widow. Anne of Austria, with her son Louis XIV, lived in the building. Louis XIV, in 1692, bestowed it as a marriage gift on his nephew, Philippe of Orleans, on the reunion between the latter and Mary Frances of Bourbon. What was done with the edifice by Philippe Egalité, the father of Louis Philippe, is well known. To recruit another word for replenish. To recruit his exhausted finances, he transformed his princely residence into a bazaar, the receptacle for the gambler and the sensualist. There are now two theatres in the Palais Royal, one bearing that name in the angle of the Rue Montpellier, and the other, the Théâtre Francais, in the Rue Richelieu. In one of the enclosures of the garden is fixed a small cannon to which a powerful lens is attached. This is fixed so that every day, when the sun shines immediately on his arriving at the meridian, the powder is ignited and, of course, the gun fired. <coughs> a number of people generally congregate around in fine weather for the purpose of testing their timekeepers and also as a sort of lounge. I'll just briefly interject here. This cannon that goes off at midday when the sun's meridian is at its height. Apparently it's still there. I've seen a picture of it and it's not a very big cannon. It's uh, actually a kind of little cannon, not much bigger than a child's toy telescope. And uh, apparently it was uh, made by one of the jewellers in the nearby shop called Rousseau. And it had this, as William describes it, this uh, mechanism that used a magnifying glass basically to uh, shine and concentrate the sun's rays onto the fuse and then it would fire. And it does apparently still, they do still have it there today doing it, but um, it now uses a different mechanism. It's probably some linked to some digital clock or something <laughs> that makes it go off at, um, at midday. But uh, I don't know how long loud the bang. I, there's a kind of contempor contemporary illustration I saw where there's all these sort of gentlemen in hats and ladies in, in frock coats sort of looking alarmed as the thing goes off. But to be honest, <laughs> I think you'd describe it as looking at it. It's a, well, I would think it's quite a quiet bang. Uh, not a huge bang like the one that they set off at, uh, I think, at one o'clock at Edinburgh Castle. And that's like a military gun, isn't it? This is it's a bit more than a pea shooter, but not much more. Anyway, uh, on with William's description. March 27th. Rose at seven o'clock and found it a most beautiful morning. Breakfasted on some of the best coffee I've ever tasted. 
I next procured a map of the city, and at once started for a ramble. I proceeded directly to the Palace of the Tuileries, as it is one of the principal edifices of Paris. The building was begun, I believe, in May 1564. The architecture, though of various kinds, presents at first sight an ensemble which is magnificent and striking. The whole front of the palace consists of five pavilions connected by four piles of buildings standing on the same line and extending over a space of more than 1,000 English feet. The gardens of the palace, which are in front and always open to the public, was crowded with fashionably dressed people of both sexes. An immense quantity of fine statues in marble and bronze adorn the different walks and parterres. A grove of fine chestnut trees furnishes the most agreeable shade and a military band was enlivening the gay scene. One walk that runs the whole length of the garden was decorated by a range of orange trees placed in cases on both sides of it. Having sauntered about for some time, I passed down the principal walk and reached a pair of fine iron gates, the pedestals of which supported four iron horses in a rampant position and exquisitely executed. Just stop here briefly to explain that the Palace of the Tuileries, which William is describing here, is no longer there. It was burned down in 1870. 1871. When the Paris Commune took over control of Paris at that time. So basically, very briefly, the Paris Commune was a sort of brief thing in a way. It was a, a group of disillusioned soldiers and members of the working class in Paris who, in the previous year, in 1870, the, there'd been a war with Germany Franco-Prussian War, in which France was heavily defeated, basically. And, uh, you know, there was obviously just disenchantment with how the government was run by Napoleon III and, in general, the governance of, of the country. So the Paris Commune was, a, if you like, a group of disgruntled uh, soldiers and leaders who took control of the capital city. And while they were doing that, they decided to burn down the Palace of the Tuileries, which, in a way, had been this sort of, I suppose, Buckingham Palace of Paris. Up until that time, it was often a residence of the members of the French royal family. They would sort of spend their time sometimes at Versailles and sometimes at the Tuileries, which had sort of begun to be built in the sort of uh, early 1600s. So it was a very grand building, which William sort of describes. And there are, obviously, you can see some pictures of it, paintings and photographs. And it's very extensive and it does have this very long facade that William describes. The gardens, which he also then talks about walk around, they are still there. But the actual palace, as I say, they actually put explosives in it in 1871, the Paris Commune, and blew up the inside. And then there was a massive fire which basically gutted the whole palace. And although the exterior facade remained, the inside of it was completely ruined. And I think eventually, a few years after this, um, it was decided it just wasn't worth being rebuilt, and so the rest of it was demolished. I think there's one or two tiny little archways and things that are in the gardens that are, are sort of last little remnants of the Palace of the Tuileries, but it's generally not there. It's very close to the Louvre. I think it was in front of the Louvre on the banks of the Seine, and obviously now that's a large open area which people can use, so... Uh, I don't think there's much chance of it ever being rebuilt. And I'm not sure whether you'd particularly want to, really. So, yeah, I just thought I'd briefly explain that that palace isn't there anymore, but the gardens that William talks about are. I then entered the Place de la Concorde, 
which is an immense circular space, the greater part of it paved with asphaltum, an old term for asphalt, or tarmac. <laughs> In the centre stands a lofty obelisk, covered with the hieroglyphics and brought by the French government at vast expense from the ancient city of Luxor in Egypt. On each side of the obelisk are two immense fountains throwing up water to a great height, and in the basin below are colossal figures of different sea monsters also spouting water in different directions. Four great roads cross the space, and on the sides of the different footpaths are a great number of the most beautiful bronze candelabra, radiant with gilding, carrying splendid lamps, which in the evenings are illuminated with gas and give additional brilliancy to the scene at that period. A low wall surrounds the circle, and in what was once a wide ditch is now laid out pretty flower gardens. On each side of where the four great roads enter are placed eight immense female figures on proportionate pedestals, the whole not being less than thirty feet in height, representing the principal departments of the kingdom and surrounded by emblematical devices denoting the principal productions of each province. Amongst them I recollect Bordeaux, bunches of grapes and olives, Havre de Grasse, shipping, the ensigns of commerce and agriculture, and lastly Lille and Lyon, manufactures and industry. I must confess that of all the places I ever entered, either before or since that period, there has been none that I was not more struck with at first sight, or shall longer cease to remember than the Place de la Concorde. Still proceeding in a direct line, I next entered the celebrated Champs-Élysées by gates corresponding to those of the gardens of the Tuileries. This is also a place of immense size, planted with lofty trees. Carriage and footpaths are laid out in every direction, and about the centre, on each side of the principal road, are two large circular buildings. One of them is the famed Cirque Olympique, or amphitheatre, for the performance of horsemanship, the other for the purpose of exhibiting panoramas. In many places under the shade of the trees are houses for the sale of wines, coffee, ices, etc., and small wooden boxes kept chiefly by old soldiers who let out the newspapers to read and at the same time rush-bottom chairs to sit upon. At the time of my visit, a great number of grave elderly gentlemen was amusing themselves in this way. Numbers of young men and boys were playing bowls and the merry maids of the Parisians were leading forth their young charges. In other parts of this vast space were to be heard the enlivening strains of military music and whole regiments of young soldiers were undergoing the operation of drill at that time. I then proceeded along a fine walk about a mile and a half in length, planted with fine elms and lined on both sides with handsome houses and beautiful gardens, and at length reached the Arc de Autoile. This is a noble and commanding structure built by that great man who has done so much to improve, enrich and augment his favourite city of Paris. Napoleon erected the Arc de Autoile to commemorate his victories. It consists of one lofty arch passing through the centre of the building and crossed by a smaller one in the opposite direction. It is ornamented with some finely executed basso-reliefs. That's uh, a term that William will use quite a lot in these journals. Bas-reliefs or, or sculptures you, you see at the bottom of large sculptures where there's a, a scene and it's sort of drawn out with the semi-prominent, shall I say, <laughs> sculpture. You know the sort of thing I mean. Kind of semi-prominent sculpture coming out of some sort of scene or, or another. The term is bas-relief, and he uses it a lot. Quite often it changes slightly. It's sometimes basso-reliefos, as in here he said, and some it's just bas-reliefs. And so I think I'll probably just use the term bas-relief for sculpted scenes a bit like a painting <laughs> i mean you know what the sort of thing i'm talking about but that's the kind of classical term for a bas relief i think we'd just say a relief wouldn't we 
also I do like that um, mention of the old soldiers who rent out the newspapers for people to read. That's a great picture of how times have changed and, and the value of a newspaper that you actually used to uh, have to rent it to read it. It's actually not so long ago that a similar sort of thing happened in this country. I remember when I was growing up, people used to rent televisions. So I suppose it's just another sign of that how times change. <laughs> Things become so cheap that the idea of renting something anymore just doesn't seem economically viable or even sensible. We used to have a company called Radio Rentals. I mean, that goes to show it was dating back to when radios first came in. People would rent a radio. And yeah, Radio Rentals would be loads of TV ads about them. You'd get your TV and you'd rent it for a while and you had to pay quite exorbitant <laughs> exorbitant rental charge every week or month. And, of course, when video recorders came in, uh, I think those shops had a bit of a lease of life again because, you know, it was that new technology that everybody wanted but couldn't necessarily afford. So people were quickly getting onto their radio rentals company and asking if they could get their Sony Betamax into their, uh, into their rental agreement. I suppose it was one way that you'd keep up having the latest equipment I remember my Uncle Bill used to rent his TV, and of course he was the first person we knew who had a television with a, a remote control. Woohoo! <laughs> Which fascinated me as a kid, because um, we still had to, oh, you know, get off the sofa, walk over to the telly, press a button to change the channel. Uh, you know, I mean, God, how we managed it, I don't know. Anyway, just a, a nice picture of those people, though, reading newspapers and renting the newspapers. I suppose you could go to the park now and, you know, hire an iPad. Why not? Might be a business there. I'll have to think about that. So back to William and his description of the Arc de Artoile. It is inscribed with all his victories and the names of all the generals that commanded under him and also of every soldier that had in any way distinguished himself. This arch, standing on very elevated ground, is seen from a great distance. I therefore ascended to the top, from which is a fine view of Paris and its environs. William is actually referring to the Arc de Triomphe here, but he calls it the Arc de Artoile. And I suppose in a way this is a good example of where someone's own notes or recollections about something are slightly wrong or what they've been told is slightly wrong. He calls it the Arc de Artoile. Artoile because it's in what was known as the Place de Atuil, which is the square of the star, because the Arc de Triomphe, I think you might be able to sort of imagine it, is uh, in this big roundabout, and radiating from that roundabout are, I think it's 12 different roads. Um, so when Paris was designed, it was this big road junction, and of course it's very star-shaped, so that's why it's called the Place de Artoile. <laughs> Please excuse my pronunciation. But obviously he's calling the, the Arc de Artoile. I think it was called, actually at the time called the Arc de Artoile. Sorry, Arc de Triomphe de Artoile. So it's an understandable mistake. I mean, it's not really a mistake. He's, he's, he's just named it after the, the, the place it's located rather than what the whole name of the monument was. So um, I don't know whether you could even say it was a mistake. Maybe just the way he wanted to refer to it as that. So it's the Arc de Triomphe. Basically, it goes down the Arc de Triomphe, and that's why it's got all these uh, references to military campaigns. Just very briefly to explain, the Arc de Triomphe was built or commissioned by Napoleon, and construction of it started in 1810. So it wasn't that long before his uh, demise, as it were. And obviously, he, he wanted it to 
stand as a monument to all his victories and military campaigns. And it took a long time to build. In fact, it, it wasn't actually finished till about 1830. So it had only been finished like a few years before William actually arrives there and climbs up to the top of it. In fact, it was took so long to build that when Napoleon got married to his second wife, Mary Louise, the Archduchess of Austria, who was his second wife uh, in, in 1810, and he entered Paris, uh, you know, wanted to make grand entrance into Paris with his new wife. And he actually had a wooden mock-up built of the arch where he was going to go through the Arc de Triomphe because obviously the stone one wasn't actually completed for another sort of 20 years. I just want to mention here as well, William's, if I would say, underlying admiration for Napoleon and there seems to be quite often references to the great man I do think there's a little bit of an undercurrent of William admiring Napoleon all the achievements that he made and as you read the journals one thing that you do notice is the tremendous impact that Napoleon did have on Europe in not just in terms of the battles that he won but the infrastructure and physical buildings and bridges and things like that that were undertaken under his orders and under his instruction. So, you know, I suppose in a way, in that regard, it's not something that's very apparent to us now, but he did have a huge impact on Europe in terms of the physical buildings and monuments and roads and transport that were built not only in France, but also in many places where he had his campaigns places like Italy. Later on, there's a reference to a bridge and roads that he has built in the Alps. And of course, some of that doesn't exist anymore either. That's It's been subsequently dismantled or for whatever reason, other wars like the Second World War destroying things. But this is something that is a, is a bit of a theme that I did notice. And William does seem to admire Napoleon. Maybe he's the sort of person, he's one of those people who likes a good dictator because at least they get things done by insisting they get done because if you don't you're going to get shot i don't know <laughs> maybe i'm being a bit hard on napoleon there i don't know quite how much of a dictator he was I, I mean undoubtedly you can't help feeling there's this overhanging influence that he's had definitely on france and definitely on europe that comes through in, a little bit in the in the journals So this next section is William just describing basically the view of Paris that he can see from the top of the Arc de Triomphe. As nearly the whole of the fuel burnt in Paris consists of wood, and there being very few steam engines or manufactories, and the morning being bright and clear, I was enabled to distinguish every object of importance in the city. Paris is nearly of circular form, the river Seine passing through its centre, before me lay the Champs-Élysées, the Place de la Concorde, and the Palace of the Tuileries. On the left, the celebrated heights of Amartre and Chéon, the Column, Napoleon. That's a big column, which is uh, now known as the, um, the Vendôme Column. The Column Napoleon in the Place de Vendôme, the Church of Madeleine, the Port Saint-Martin, the Column of the Revolution of July, on the spot where the Bastille formerly stood, and on my right, the river with its numerous bridges the Champ de Mars and the Polytechnic, the splendid dome of the Church of the Invalids and the Pantheon, the gardens and the palace of Luxembourg. Lower down rose the towers of Notre Dame, the Cathedral Church of Paris, and far in the distance might be discerned the Jardin de Plantes. 
turning round towards the country, I discerned a fine road running to the village of Noe, thronged with horsemen and carriages, whilst to the right and left were other roads outside the barriers leading to different villages and towns and environs. Descending from my elevated position, I turned to the right, and reaching the banks of the river, I gazed a moment at its splendid quays. Of no use, however, but as public walks, as the Seine, though a tolerably wide river, is unlike the Thames, merely bearing on its bosom a few barks laden with fuel, and at some seasons of the year with wine from the southern provinces. At this time I determined to cross, if possible, all the Paris bridges, alternately passing along the quays of both banks. Now, at this point, um, I'm going to stop reading from William's journals and this episode of the podcast, because it seems uh, a good point at which to end, because the next section really is him describing all the bridges of Paris that he, as he says, decides to walk over, going from bank to bank. And that's quite a lengthy section, so this seems a, a good point to finish. No doubt you're probably a bit bored of me yapping on anyway. I'm aiming to make these podcasts around about the half hour to sort of 40 minute length, any more than that. And um, I'm sure interest begins to wane and my stamina too. So <laughs> when one was recording these things, it becomes very aware of the nervous sort of ticks one has in your speech. So that's uh, something I'm trying to work on. It's getting rid of the repetitious anyways. And uh, what's the other one I seem to, you might say, I seem to say that quite a lot. I'm trying to get rid of them, but if if the odd one creeps in, do forgive me. Anyway, it's a, it's quite a nice moment to finish as well. A lot of these place names that uh, William mentions when he's looking out of the um, view of Paris that he gets from the top of the Arc de Triomphe there, I do try to say them correctly. But if, if I get them wrong and I'm offending French speakers in any way, I do apologise. As a British person, we're notoriously bad at other languages and... Um, I'm no exception in that regard. Some of those place names and their areas that he mentions, when I originally read the journals, I sort of had to look up. And some of these places, of course, the names have changed slightly or there's only a brief mention of them. When he mentions the heights of Chion, there's no real area of that, but is the, there is a palace de Chion. I imagine that is what he's referring to. He, he gets the name slightly incorrect and the spelling, he spells it C-H-I-L-L-O-N. And uh, the Palace de Chalot is C-H-A-I-L-L-O-T. But again, you see, you know, he is going by what he's been told and noting down at the time, I imagine. And indeed, also, spellings do change over time as well. But there are these slight errors in the journals. Or if they're not errors, time has gone by and actual names and facts have changed about places he's seeing. I try not to get too bogged down in that, but sometimes you have to explain that. I think the Napoleon column is is one where now it's it's definitely known as the Vendôme column. So kind of have to say that if you were walking around Paris now and asking for Napoleon's column, that they they might I don't know perhaps the locals might point you in the right direction, but um, you'd be better off saying its new name. Anyway, see there I go again. So that's the end of this episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. As I say, the next bit is another section in Paris. Um, he's there for quite a while describing it all. But it does give an interesting idea for people of what Paris was like at that time. I do hope you tune in again to the next episode. And if you have enjoyed it, do tell your friends. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.